It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, live in New York City. Today and again tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. We air live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. The podcast is available every day, of course, on demand, free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com for all the details there. Part of the reason that I'm here in New York is for TV. It's really the main reason. I was on Gutfeld last night. A lot of fun. I may or may not have called my friend Kat Timpf a meth head. That might have happened. Or is really more of an implication. She'll be here tomorrow to fire back at me. But that was a very fun show to do last night. It was their last show for a while with a studio audience live because of COVID concerns here in New York and elsewhere. Tonight, I'm filling in for Kennedy on Fox Business Network. 7 p.m. Eastern Time. That's going to be a fun show as well. And I have to say, I'm wearing my Christmas best. I've got the white shirt. I've got the red Christmas tie and sort of this wool jacket, sport coat with a kind of a cool pattern. It's it's Christmassy. That was my goal when I was thinking about wardrobe choices. So if you're not watching on the live stream at Fox Nation, you'll have to tune in tonight on Kennedy just to see the getup, the ensemble that I have prepared, and then, of course, our ensemble of terrific guests. That's 7 p.m. Eastern Fox Business Network tonight. Kennedy, with me as guest host. I'm sitting in for myself on the radio, on the Guy Benson Show. Here's the lineup. Jason Rance, our friend from the Pacific Northwest. He's got some scoops about the madness out there. He'll be here later in the hour. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, looking forward to this conversation, both on radio and TV. She put out a Christmas wish list involving COVID. All she wants for Christmas are a few things for the government and the public to do when it comes to COVID. We will run through that list with her, plus some significant developments on the COVID front. Some good news. The Pfizer pill was approved by the FDA. We'll get her take, excuse me, her take on that. Josh Krasauer will join us in that middle hour as well, talking politics. Build Back Better, the demise of Biden's agenda. Could something be revived in the new year? Are there political incentives to do so? And how are things looking for 2022? There are some additional, I would say, early signs that it could be a very good year next year for the Republican Party. Joey Jones, our friend, will drop by in the 5 p.m. hour, our happy hour. He had a really moving tweet last night about sort of powering through adversity and making a choice to choose joy and gratitude over, you know, some more difficult feelings that we all feel sometimes. And and he was very open about it. We'll talk to him about that, especially around the holidays. I think it's important for people to hear it. And I'm sure there are people listening to my voice right now 
who either dread the holidays in general or dread it this year for some reason with everyone else happy and excited. And that's not how you feel. And that can be very lonely and very difficult. And Joey will be here and we'll also it won't be all sadness. It'll be uplifting the conversation we have with Joey. Also, you don't want to miss a special extended home stretch at the end of the show today. We're going to be talking about Christmas gift giving this year, and I may or may not have a bit of a confession. So we will get to all of that. Very busy show ahead. Let's begin it with a Fox News alert. Stats on COVID, 51.3 million known confirmed cases in the U.S. I mean, the real number is so much higher, so much higher. And I think even after we got through our first testing failure, we have a new testing failure. There's plenty of people who have, let's say, Omicron. They don't even know it. I read that close to 40% of Omicron sufferers, if you can call them that, don't even know that they have Omicron because it's asymptomatic. So 51.3 million, that's a very high number. It's also a low ball. The death toll is 808,414. Americans who have died with or of COVID, although there's an important distinction between those two categories, and we do not have good data on that still. The Dow is up 195 points right now, trading at 35,688, and we'll keep an eye on that for the next 49 minutes and change. So yesterday, we opened the show with President Biden just finishing up some of his remarks on his new COVID sort of battle strategy heading into the new year in the winter. And we praised partially some of what he said. We criticized partially some of what he said. By the way, he got some unexpected praise from a source that I was not betting would say something positive or uh I guess, supportive of Joe Biden. We'll tell you about that later this hour. But I think part of Biden's problem, broadly speaking, well, let's start with this. And it's a point that I made here on the radio yesterday, made it again on Gutfeld last night, a different variation of it, but it's the same theme. And I recognize our interview with Governor Sununu yesterday. He kind of explained partially why some of this might be the case, but it's still, as the governor said, not really an excuse, being almost two years into a pandemic and seeing, I mean, what, Christine and Dan on our team here in New York, they saw long lines all over Manhattan today coming into work of people waiting, trying to get tested. This is playing out in major cities across the country. There is a huge shortage of tests for COVID, which blows my mind. Did we not? I saw Mark Thiessen just tweeted this earlier. Did we not just spend $2 trillion more dollars on COVID, supposedly COVID relief stuff. That was one of our critiques of the Democrats' COVID bill when Biden came into office. You had trillions of dollars spent on a bipartisan basis. Then the Democrats took over all of Washington. They wanted to do their own so-called COVID bill. And what did we say on this program over and over again? We said the problem with this $1.9 trillion is that a lot of it has nothing to do with COVID or is going to be spent Years from now, right? They're saying we need this to keep our schools open. It's like a huge chunk of the money for schools was going to be spent in 2023 and beyond, not related to COVID. 
If they just spent $2 trillion on COVID relief at the very beginning of this year, the very beginning of Biden's presidency, here we are months later, and there's a shortage of COVID testing in multiple major cities around the country. How is that possible? Where the hell did all that money go? It's not fair to blame any president or any leader for what's happening with COVID. Everyone's trying to cope and figure out what to do. It's interesting when it was Trump, they criticized. When it's Ron DeSantis, they criticize directly at fault, blood on their hands. Then when the bad news comes to other places, it's sort of like, oh, what? How unfortunate. That's, I guess the seasonality is hitting and we all have to come together and unite. It's a very different tone. But there are some things, as I've been saying, that the federal government at least has some control over. Having sufficient testing would be one of them. Having a sufficient plan for booster shots so people don't have to wait weeks to get them. That would be another one. We know that variants arise, right? New variants show up. People might get scared. There might be a run on booster shots from previously hesitant people. All of a sudden they want to do it. How is there not a great plan in place for people to go out and get tested on demand for free or for cheap and to get their booster shot on demand? The ball has been dropped on those things. We know that there are really good therapeutics, whether it's antibodies or this new pill. It's been a slow process. There's been an insufficient amount of those therapeutics available. Where's the Operation Warp Speed on that stuff? We've heard how many speeches from Joe Biden now about COVID? Speech after speech, demand after demand, Shame fest after shame fest, wagging his finger at all these people. You got to do this. If you don't do that, you're going to be suffering and all of it. Trillions of dollars spent. And almost two years into this, you still can't get a test and you can't easily get a booster in a lot of places across the country. How is that not a failure? How is that not a failure? Well, here's the answer. It is. And you've got incoherent messaging from people at the very top of this thing, starting with the president himself. So he insisted that the lack of testing or the testing shortfalls right now are not a failure, which, you know, of course, he's going to say that because it's his failure. He promised to shut down the virus. and We don't even have tests to go around for people who feel like they might be symptomatic or needing to go somewhere. And people suddenly saying, oh, you know what? Fine. I am going to get boosted. Oh, I have to wait until January 14th or whatever. While the death toll has exceeded the Trump era death toll, there's someone in charge and he got elected on the promise to shut down the virus. And he's saying, oh, well, these problems, not his fault. And part of the reason he says it's not his fault is because no one could have anticipated any of this. Cut five. I don't think anybody anticipated that this was going to be as rapidly spreading as it did. The Omicron virus spread even more rapidly than anybody thought. Okay, so they say they're caught off guard by a new variant, even though how long have they been warning us about new variants and how things change and how it's like the flu and there's a new flu shot every year. Like, this is not new. People have been screaming about new variants. People have been screaming about testing capacity, including the doctors on this show for months. I was like, oh, well, who could have seen this coming? Well, this is the problem for Biden. Also yesterday, that soundbite was from yesterday. 
Also yesterday was Dr. Rashal Walensky. Dr. Walensky runs the CDC in the Biden administration. She was on special report. And here's what she said on the same exact subject in cut six. The speed by which Omicron has um, been, you know, transmitting has been seen and mirrored in many other countries. And so we've been watching this carefully. We anticipated this. This is what we have been preparing for. There have been doubling times of this virus in other countries that have had the virus before us in the one and a half to three day range. And so this is exactly she goes on. This is exactly what we anticipated. And it is what we have been preparing for her quote. That is the CDC director. There's a direct quote. We anticipated this. This is what we have been preparing for. This is exactly what we anticipated back to back on the same day with the president saying, I don't think anybody anticipated this. Seems like a problem, does it not? And then there's something else that Walensky said in response to one of the questions on special report about masking in schools and science and data. A bad answer to a good question with a new development that really cornered her. No wonder she didn't answer the question well. We will get to that when we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Glad you're listening. So on special report with Brett Baer last night, he had, Brett did, the CDC director that we were talking about in the last segment, Rochelle Walensky on the show. And one thing that Brett sometimes does, which I like, is he asks the audience for questions and he picks some of them and he puts those questions to major lawmakers. And some of them are submitted in video form. So here was, I think, a succinctly stated tough question for the CDC director from a viewer. Listen to the question and then the answer. Cut 14. You have consistently cited one study in Arizona as justification for mask mandates in schools. Yet there's reporting in The Atlantic that shows that this study is deeply flawed. Will you follow the science and stop relying on faulty studies and end mask mandates for children in schools? Response. Um, You know, there have been study after study, not only in this country, but in other countries that have demonstrated um, that our layered prevention strategies, including masks in schools, are able to keep our schools safely open. Um, What I would say now is that we have the capacity with um, vaccines available now to children above the age of five, that we would encourage parents to get their children vaccinated. Okay, so then she goes off on vaccines and vaccinating kids. Now, she can talk about study after study. We have reality after reality that showed over the course of this pandemic, many schools stayed open without masking. In the United States, places like Florida and private schools and other areas, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, the CDC of Europe does not recommend masking for children, especially under a certain age in schools, because the science doesn't back it up. They've been fine. And yet we're an outlier in this country where the CDC is forcing like five-year-olds to wear masks eight hours a day in school. There's no strong basis for it. And there's a massive amount of data of real-world outcomes that contradict that requirement. 
Now, she says there's study after study. The problem that she has, and this is what she sidestepped in that answer, is the study that she has most aggressively cited was this study out of Arizona that the gentleman correctly pointed out has been found to be deeply flawed. And this was a piece in The Atlantic by David Zwig, the journalist who dug into it and spoke to experts and scientists who looked at this study that was much ballyhooed and absolutely highlighted and touted by the CDC and by Walensky herself. This was sort of like the signature study where they claimed that schools without mask mandates were 3.5 times times more likely to experience COVID outbreaks. So if that were true, that'd be a very big difference. Mass schools versus unmasked schools based on this Arizona finding. However, now I'm reading from The Atlantic, the, the Arizona study at the center of the CDC's back-to-school blitz turns out to be profoundly misleading. Quote, you can't learn anything about the effects of school mask mandates from this study, said one expert. The data being touted by CDC ought to be excluded from this debate, says another expert. Calling the data, quote, so unreliable that it probably should not have entered into the public discourse. And this piece in The Atlantic goes on in depth and at length about one methodological problem after another in this study. From the dates that were monitored, where there were mismatches of when schools were even open, so they were comparing apples with oranges, with the methodology on what counted as an outbreak, to not accounting for vaccination rates in some of the schools, like The experts poked every hole you could imagine in this thing to the point that you had them saying with their name on the record, things like this is useless. This is pointless. This should have never entered the public discourse. There was another official out of Stanford who had a pretty brutal quote as well. Just one after another. Blasting this thing. And so uh, this is. What the CDC and what Walensky herself relied upon and rushed out onto national television with this study in hand. Look, we were right about school masking. This this vindicates our decision. Well, not so much. And then she has to backslide and say, oh, well, there are other studies. You cannot hold up like your gold standard study to prove your point, And then it gets debunked. And then you just pretend like, oh, well, I'm still on the side of science. Not a great answer because there isn't a great answer. Not confidence-inspiring, is it? We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. How are you? Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast, is always free. By the way, in the last segment, I was citing that. Arizona study piece in the Atlantic just blowing up what the CDC was citing 
to justify their school masking policies, which are way out of step with science and the world. And I thought one of the professors I had recalled was from Stanford. I stand corrected. It was a Yale professor. I just like to be scrupulously accurate here on the show. That professor calling the study, quote, ridiculous. And I wrote about this, among a few other related things, at townhall.com earlier in the week. You can look up that piece if you have more of a curiosity about it. Because tell the CDC director, did not have much of a response on special report last night to that question. Joining us now is Jason Rance, a familiar face all over Fox, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in Seattle, Tacoma which is our affiliate out there as well here on this program. And Jason, it's great to have you. Happy holidays to you, sir. Thank you for uh, taking some time off of that campaign for governor to uh, interview. <laughs> yes, yeah, really uh, yes. yes, we're broadcasting. I know I said we're in New York. It might seem like I'm in New York, but maybe I'm secretly in Denver. You never know. That's it's an inside joke. If you missed it on the home stretch earlier in the week, I do recommend going back and listening to it. Jason, I want to talk to you about a few things related to law and order, law enforcement. You had a new scoop today that you published about sort of a a very difficult set of circumstances facing first responders in your home city. What did you learn and what are the implications for public safety? Yeah, so Seattle Police and Seattle Fire are down staff to significant levels going into the pandemic. They had already been losing a whole bunch of staff members over at SPD over the last two years almost. They lost close to some 350 officers who just decided to leave because they couldn't take the politics of working in the city of Seattle. Then cut to in October, we had the vaccine mandate, which sidelined dozens and dozens and dozens of officers and Seattle Fire Department, firefighters, EMTs. And we're at the point where not only does SPD find itself unable to uh, properly staff just to minimum levels in every single precinct across every single watch for every single day into the new year. You have the Seattle Fire Department having to turn six units offline and then convert some of their engines into aid units just so they could be able to properly take care of the city. The implications, I think, are pretty clear that the city of Seattle is not safe. It is not being properly policed. And if there were to be a fire or any sort of medical emergency that uh, is sort of out of the ordinary, the city is not prepared. So you guys have been through a lot, right? That crazy autonomous zone, all the Antifa nonsense, a lot of violence, far left defund the police pushes. You've had some actual communists out there running for for government positions. It seems like the Most insane elements have been beaten back by voters a little bit, but it's clearly still an active problem. Do you get any sense that the people of Seattle and the surrounding area, which is about as blue an area as you can find in the country, are they ever going to stand up and say, we have had enough and we're so fed up that we're going to throw the Democratic Party out of power? Or is it just so far gone that the idea of electing a Republican is just horrifying enough that you would rather live in an extremely dangerous place. I mean, so we're never going to get a fully Republican council or likely a mayor. However, we're starting to see some course correction. So in this last election, we saw a Republican win a citywide office for the first time in some 30 plus years. Now, it only took a Republican to 
face off against a literal police and prison abolitionist for Seattle City Attorney who said she was not going to prosecute any crimes. So you really have to play the cards right Uh and make sure you go up against the most extreme of extremists in order for that to happen. And this was one of those cases where it was a three-way race in the primary. You had a Republican, you had the incumbent Democrat, and you had this abolitionist. And it just so happened that the abolitionist split the vote enough to get enough of the base, but also some Democrats. And then the incumbent, some of those folks, went over to the Republican side. So the Republican was able to sneak in. And then once people realized, oh, we're, we're about to do this, aren't we? Let's, uh, let's turn back around. We can't do it. So thankfully, even though that race was still pretty close in the context of, of, of you know, running up against crazy, th- there is at least a willingness from the city to step up and say, we, we can see ourselves going a little bit too far. Now, I would have already argued you've already gone too far. Oh, this clearly. Just insane. But, but to, to the Seattle area, look, I'm the outlier, right? I'm one of 17 conservatives who live there. So <laughs> uh, in the context of the abolitionists, they just said, okay, we're, 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 we're going to pass on this one, and we'll see how things go. So obviously the pressure is now on the Republican city attorney to actually prosecute and, and get some stuff done. Is that a hopeful sign to you to the point that it reinforces your decision to live where you live? Because I think I sometimes talk to friends who are in these places and they can't stand it and they just feel like they're beating their head up against a wall every day. And that's, you know, almost what you do for a living in Seattle, (laughs) exposing all this insanity all the time out there. And it's like, okay, do I have a duty to stay in my home and try to fix this place? And bring accountability or at some point you just sort of pack your bag and say, I can't take it anymore. Is this even it's a small victory, but it is a victory. Is that the type of thing that gives you some sort of validation that what you're doing out there is making a difference? So I I am quite cynical. I I never think that Seattle is ever fully going to recover from where it is. However, you know, look, I I work in Seattle. My radio show is based in Seattle. A lot of the issues that happen there lead the conversation, and it has impacts far beyond the city. I I suppose I could move outside of the city, go to some of the suburbs, move to Kirkland or Bellevue or Everett. But the truth of the matter is, this isn't Vegas. What happens in Seattle spreads outside of it. So I would rather be in the thick of things and get a better sense of what's going on and truly experience it so I can, in fact, cover it and hopefully make some change. Obviously, we were big supporters on the show of that particular uh, Republican candidate, Ann Davison, so we were glad to see her win. We also saw on the council we had to end up backing a Democrat, but she was a business-friendly Democrat who was also running up against an abolitionist, and the business-friendly Democrat won. So, you know, I, I like to see these victories. I just never can tell if they're going to last uh, right. enough time to actually truly change things. It's, I've said this before. It's kind of like going on a diet. You're hardcore keto for three months. You end up losing seven pounds. You wish it was 17, but you'll take it. And then you go to one party, you have a slice of cake, and then you just gained 11 pounds. And all of that work was for naught. And that's really what we're talking about when it comes mm-hmm. to these policies that have been implemented. Very quickly deteriorates the city of Seattle, and then you got to work at it really, really hard for years to get it back to where it was. Just to maintain the crazy weight loss. Uh, You know, that's sort of what you're analogizing this to. I think that's a pretty good analogy to make. I want to also shift to see uh, from Seattle to Chicago, Jason, because there's been some interesting developments in that city. I want to read to you a series of headlines over the course of the last two years out of Chicago. And I actually amplified this Twitter 
uh, thread from a friend moments ago if people want to go find it. So this was a July of 2020 headline. Chicago mayor asks Trump not to send federal agents saying it would spell disaster. All right. Next headline is from October. A few months later, 2020, Chicago mayor proposes $80 million cut from police budget. Now, new headline from yesterday, Chicago mayor calls for federal help to fight violent crime. You know, Jason, it's almost as if the refusal of federal assistance under Trump was purely political and the defunding of the police was a complete disaster. And now you've got Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago who's blamed businesses for not, like, stopping looting better on their own, which is a very strange look for a mayor. She's now there begging the feds for help. It's like she caused the problem herself and is hoping no one will ever notice. Yeah, and I certainly hope that people are smart enough to figure this out. You know, you make the point that she denied or declined the, the federal help and defunded the police for political purposes. But I wonder if this is for political purposes, right? I mean, I wonder if now she's asking for help is because she thinks that people are starting to pay attention and blame her and she could be seen as oh, I'm sure that's this, it. this savior, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, I suppose beggars can't be choosers. I'm, I'm glad that she's asking for help. But to be clear, just calling in the ATF, which is what she's asking for, to get some of these gun cases solved and get guns off the streets, that's not going to solve your problem. Nope. It's a part of it. It, it, it is a, a part of the recipe, as it were, but it's not the full recipe. You're going in to bake a cake, but you only have sugar. So you're going to have to make the basis for the cake and, and figure out all those other pieces. And that includes not just going after the guns, but more importantly, going after the people holding the guns and pulling the triggers and making sure that when you arrest them, you actually ask for bail. And then when you ask for bail, it's high enough to make sure that they stay in jail so they're not quickly uh, put back out on the streets to recommit crime after crime after crime. This is an this is a all-encompassing problem. And if you don't attack it from every single direction, right. you're not going to truly get at the root cause. Well, no, and, that's, and that's the thing. It's This is, and you're describing it in Seattle, and we've seen it in a lot of other places, of course, Portland, Oregon, Chicago. Uh, a lot of these big cities, unfortunately, a lot of places here in New York as well, this is leftist governance on display. And I know a lot of them want to go straight to the talking point about guns because that aligns with their their priors, right? Oh, we don't like guns. We see guns as the problem, so let's crack down on guns. Well, when you've got this whole stew of problems that they are causing with their policies, you can't just isolate the one thing that sort of aligns with your worldview and ignore the huge problems that are being inflicted by you and your ideology. And I think that's what a lot of these politicians are attempting, and it's not working. And when they start to feel the heat is when there would be the course correction. This is another story breaking today from Cook County, Illinois. So just west of Chicago, a Democratic state senator was carjacked at gunpoint and her car was stolen. I mean, thank goodness she and her husband are fine. They were not harmed. But you know, you read about all the carjacking problems. It's a huge thing in D.C. It's been a massive problem in Chicago to the point that they were hiring security guards, armed security at gas stations so people wouldn't have their cars stolen while they were filling up their cars. Now you have a state senator 
that this has happened to. You had a former U.S. Senator, Barbara Boxer, mugged and assaulted in broad daylight in Oakland a few weeks ago. I mean, when you actually have the elected Democrats starting to feel the crime getting out of control, maybe, 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 because it's personally hurting them, you might start to see some changes. I, I am... I'm willing to bet that you won't see that many changes, even when politicians are the victims. I think where you start to see the change is when your everyday voter becomes a victim or knows a victim or is feeling that fear, just walking to the grocery store, going into a park with their kids. At the end of the day, we're talking about, in large part, ideologues. And ideologues are blinded by their beliefs. They are a member of a cult in a way. And Republicans have the same issue in certain circumstances as well on certain issues. But the average person does not view everything as political. They're not paying close attention to the news the way you and I would or the way people who listen to the show every single day would. They're going about their lives. And if they start to feel unsafe, if they start to feel anxious for no reason other than living in their own community as they have for the longest time, yep. that's when you start to see the actual shifts. And unfortunately, you kind of have to hit rock bottom or get close to that for a lot of these people to start to change their behaviors on how they vote. Jason Rance is host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH out there in the Pacific Northwest, in the Seattle area, and we always appreciate you coming on, Jason. We love being on your station as well as part of the Guy Benson Show family. And importantly, looking forward to seeing you tonight on Kennedy. You'll be on the panel. I'm subbing in for Kennedy, and that'll be a lot of fun doing this all over again on the TV side. Yeah, this was my show prep for the the TV side. <laughs> Perfect. I'm glad to help. Right, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna like do you a solid here, and now you can go and hang out and relax until. Are you, are you doing it from the van? I, you know what? That's a good question. I'm told I'm not, but I'm pretty sure I have to, so we'll find out. <laughs> okay, well, fingers crossed on that, and I know you're here in New York, so perhaps we will brave Omicron and get dinner after the show. How about that? Love it. Let's do it. All right, Jason Rance on The Guy Benson Show. We will step aside and be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Thanks to the prior administration and our scientific community, America is one of the first countries to get the vaccine. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was President Biden yesterday at the White House, thanking and crediting the previous administration, the Trump administration, for the vaccines, which is right. Operation Warp Speed, one of the biggest decisions Trump made, and it was the right one. I mean, to the tune of, based on one estimate that I read, an academic study A million American lives saved. A million. Because of those vaccines. Now, I'll give half a clap to Biden for doing it. I know people were like, oh, so magnanimous of him. This is true leadership. He should have been doing that frequently from the beginning. If you want to sell the vaccine, credit the hell out of the people who handed you the vaccines. But he had some trouble doing that has been very inconsistent at best. And I get it, you know, Trump attacks him all the time and maybe he feels like, oh, I don't. But if the goal is to bring people together on the vaccination issue, that's an easy one to do. And he hasn't been able to do it that often. And I guess when you are failing, as Biden is, on COVID on a number of fronts, it gets a little bit easier to say, oh, well, gosh, let's let's come together and let's heal. That was not the tune he was whistling, of course, as a candidate. And it's not the tune he was whistling when he would attack Republican governors 
viciously and often baselessly from DeSantis to Abbott and others. But he did credit the Trump administration yesterday. He did also mention that Trump is boosted. Trump said he was boosted the other day, and there were some people who heckled him, and Trump totally shut that down. He's saying, no, 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 this is a good thing. We achieved this. We shouldn't play into the hands of the left and let them take credit for the thing that we achieved. So I think that was, you know, we talked about it here. I think that was a good thing that Trump said. So then Biden comes out, highlights the fact that they're both boosted, highlights the fact that it was the Trump administration that developed these vaccines, and then it's sort of like, okay, what's Trump going to say? Well, foxnews.com had the exclusive. He said, quote, I think Biden did something very good. He said he was very appreciative and surprised that Biden acknowledged the truth, but that Biden went there. Trump said, quote, you know, it has to be a process of healing in this country, and that, meaning what Biden said, will help a lot. It might be a bit bit much to hear Trump talking about the need for national unity and healing. That's not exactly the way that he practices politics, let's be honest. But I think if the point is that you want to get people protected from the virus, having an agreement on vaccines with some shared credit is the right thing. And I'm glad that Biden said what he said yesterday. And I'm glad that Trump said what he said today, reacting. Something very good. A process of healing. Surprised and appreciative. Good. More of that. We can get, I think, on board for that. Can we not? Dr. Sapphire coming up in our new hour. That's straight ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free every day. Catch me on Kennedy tonight. I'm guest hosting. That'll be fun. Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Fox News alert. The Dow had a good day, up 261 points in the green, closing at 35,753. Well, with us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of the book Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Guy. Delighted to have you. Let's start with some news here, including from the FDA and this pill from Pfizer that would treat people who have contracted COVID-19. What can you tell us about this treatment and what's the significance of this approval process moving forward? Well, the medication we're talking about is called Texlovid. It's an antiviral medication. It targets a protease, which is an enzyme of the virus that is required for the virus to replicate. And without that enzyme, it's not able to. So that's great news. And it got its EUA today, uh, yet the data has been sitting on the FDA's desk for about a month. That's the so emergency monthly, use authorization, right? Just just to that's uh, right. go ahead. Correct. It does not have the full FDA approval. And that would probably we wouldn't see that if we're going to see that until the summer or later. In clinical trials of about 2,200 people, 
this medication was able to demonstrate an ability to reduce hospitalization and death in high-risk individuals by about 89%. Now, let me put it this way. This is going to be the equivalent of the Tamiflu to flu, and yet Tamiflu only has about a 63% efficacy at preventing hospitalization and death. So as of right now, you know, this looks like it functions even better than Tamiflu, but again, moving forward, we need to see how this plays out in real world. Will the efficacy decrease a little bit? Possibly. Um, however, it is extremely promising and is exactly what we needed is to be able to keep high risk individuals out of the hospital. But it's another weapon, right? Another important weapon in the overall battle against this virus. Well, undoubtedly, this is another tool that is put into our arsenal in exactly what we have needed. We have the vaccines, we have the boosters, but as we see that we're having infections in those who are vaccinated, even those who are boosted. And while the far, far majority are mild infections, our high-risk individual and our unvaccinated, there are still people being hospitalized. So it is essential that we get these people tested. We need to have access to tests. And we also need to make sure that they have access to these treatments to keep them out of the hospital. Because the last thing we need during the wintertime is people showing up to urgent cares and the ERs needing to be hospitalized. And if we have a medication that can be taken outpatient that will reduce their chance of being hospitalized, this is a game changer for us. There's also this story that's going around in the last 12, 24 hours about a military-developed vaccine from the United States Army that would be a vaccine that would protect, they say, or at least is what the headlines are saying, that would protect against COVID, future variants, and also SARS and, and different iterations of SARS. Is that something that's realistic where you could confidently say this would prevent future variants as well? I mean, it's almost seems like a too good to be true headline, but we know our military can do some amazing things and they've got a lot of uh, technology at their disposal, some very smart people working on this project. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, the media does love a good headline, but so let's break down what we're talking about. Walter Reed put out a presser today talking about that they had, in, for the last two years, been working on their own vaccine. And with that, they're using what's called nanoparticles with a ferritin protein. Now, ferritin is something that we have circulating in our blood. What they're doing is they're taking that and they're putting on the surface of it multiple variations of the spike protein that we see in various different coronaviridae. Now, they're... The idea behind that is if the immune system is exposed to multiple different spike proteins, then not only will it have a strong antibody response, which we've heard a lot about with our current vaccines, but also it will elicit a robust T-cell response and kind of inciting other forms of our immune system to make it that if future variations or variants or, you know, even strains of a coronavirus are encountered, that you will have some level of immunity to it. And, you know, this is something that's been talked about for decades, trying to come up with a vaccine against the common cold. While not all common colds are caused by coronaviruses, many are. So, uh, you know, is it too good to be true? Maybe. I've never heard of this technology for vaccines. It's not mRNA. It's not an attenuating virus. But then again, we've never had an mRNA vaccine um, like uh, up until a couple of years ago. So it's ago. at least in, so, intriguing, no, would you excited. say, and, you know, hopeful? 
incredibly intriguing, and I, they said that they're going to be updating us soon. Obviously, this is in very early clinical trials, just finished uh, phase one. But I can tell you it's extremely intriguing and very interesting, and the military has a lot of resources. Yep. So I am, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this. Meanwhile, doctor, on Omicron, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it, you start to lose track of some of the potential, you know, uh, folks that you've bumped into and potential exposures. I mean, it's it's going crazy in the Northeast right now, but it continues to come up as quite mild. There was a, a big amount of data just out of the UK that is mirroring what we saw in South Africa as well, if I'm not mistaken, that overall the level of hospitalization and certainly death from Omicron is just not even almost on the same planet as what we saw certainly from Delta. Is that, like, is it too soon to just say Omicron is much more mild and less severe with not as harmful outcomes as previous variants or strains of COVID? Like, is the data now strong enough to confidently assert that about Omicron? Uh, great question. A little bit loaded, and I hesitate to answer it because everything we see right now suggests that Omicron is more mild. There are confounding factors. Uh, is it because that we just see a lot more cases, and so we know that a, a huge amount of people will only have mild disease with COVID-19? And I don't think that's as big of a factor, but we have a lot of immunity in populations right now in terms of vaccine-induced immunity and natural immunity. However, all of those uh, confounding factors being said, there seems to be a severe uncoupling of infection with new cases and hospitalization and death rates. This has been seen in South African data, Scotland data, um, even the UK. I mean, and in the United States, even the very, very early reports are also an uncoupling. So I am cautiously optimistic, but I am wholly optimistic. And even Dr. Fauci in the COVID task force update <laughs> that just happened last hour. I mean, yeah, even it was Fauci. kind of funny the way he said it. He was asked the question and he said, you know what? It's possible that this could be a more mild form and have less morbidity and mortality. And I felt like that. And dumber. Oh, we lost, we lost the doctor. I think I know the story that she's telling, though, because I saw it on her Twitter, the dumb and dumber quote. So you're telling me there's a chance. I think that's what she's referring to. Uh, Doctor, did I finish the punchline for you, the dumb and dumber line? I can't believe I cut out for my punchline. (laughs) Of course that would happen. But yes, Uh it's like I blame Omicron. You're saying there's a chance. (laughs) (laughs) So but that's good. If 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 he's sounding kind of upbeat about this, that's, of course, uh, a good sign. There was also a big story about how doctors and, and experts in South Africa are sort of baffled by how the wave seems to already be gone. Like it went crazy, just totally spiked in South Africa. Omicron went everywhere and then everything crashed. Cases came way down. Hospitalizations never went up in the way that they were expecting. Deaths, not even close. And then it's like gone Could we see something like that with Omicron here? Well, you know, we have two things. We have something working against us. First of all, we have Omicron, which is highly transmissible. We still have Delta, highly transmissible. But we also have holiday gatherings. And so those holiday gatherings will be fueling those cases. 
But I think by the end of January, you will also see a drastic decline of cases similar as other countries are seeing. Now, we also got the colder weather here and the gatherings are then inside. So that's, you know, that's something working against us. Something working for us compared to South Africa is a much higher vaccine rate here than they have down there. So there's all these factors. We're watching all of it closely and talking to doctors as often as we can. Dr. Sapphire is our guest, Nicole Sapphire, and we have a few minutes left, doctor. I wanted to quickly run through the specifics of a tweet that I liked from you yesterday. I, in fact, I retweeted it. It was your Christmas list. It was like, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, as Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is, and then a list of things that you think the government ought to do to make things better on the COVID front. Maybe give us your punch list here of the top ones that would headline your Christmas wish list. I will tell you two things that I am desperate to hear out of this administration, which I'm continuing not hearing, is to do away with the exposure quarantines. We have the ability to test, we have vaccines, and we have boosters, and we clearly have a worker shortage because of this. And so rather than sending FEMA in the military to help us with the worker shortages, the way that they can actually keep people at work is by decreasing or eliminating in its entirety people who have been exposed to someone who is positive and let them be able to work and just have rapid testing and before they go into work. And that couples with the next one. For people who have been vaccinated and or boosted, their quarantine or their isolation after being infected does not need to be 10 days because we know that we have plenty of data at this point that shows that their transmission is much shorter than the earlier waves. There's no need for these people, especially once they've become asymptomatic, to still be in isolation at 10 days. So I would have really liked to hear some of that. You know, one of them did come true. I said, let's get Paxlovid out. And lo and behold, here it is. Yes. So uh, I guess that's an early Christmas present. Yeah, Too you want to wrap that really one early. Available. Yeah, but it won't be available. They said that maybe we'll have about 280,000 courses available by the end of January. That doesn't really do much for us right now. Yeah. Um, and expanding more access to testing and antibodies. And by the way, removing masks from children. We know at this point this is a highly transmissible variant. It's likely aerosolized. Those single-layer cloth masks are doing nothing except hiding the faces of our beautiful children. What is your position on asymptomatic testing just as a matter of course because i know some people say we need to stop just testing people to show up you know positive tests if they're not exactly exhibiting really in any case any of the symptoms but can asymptomatic people spread the virus anyway like what's what's your position on who ought to be testing and when well, you know, it's if you can find sword. a test, if you can find a test, by the way, because that's another challenge. Right. If you can test right now. But no, it's a double edged sword. We'd love to know anyone and everyone who's positive. So to help decrease transmission, because asymptomatic, even boosted individuals can still transmit the virus. Yes, it's much less likely, but they can. Um, when it comes to testing asymptomatic people, I think it's important to do that in order to keep people at work, for instance. So if we're eliminating post-exposure quarantines, then yes, even if they're asymptomatic, we should test them to send them to work. They're at a higher risk of having COVID because of their exposure. Um, the 
right now, the CDC and the task force, they're recommending that everyone does a rapid test before they gather for the holidays. Do you know why they shouldn't be saying that right now? Because we don't have tests. We don't have enough. We need people who are actually symptomatic to be able to access those tests. So, uh, And they also said that it's not safe to go and be around people you don't know their vaccine status, but it is safe to gather with your family as long as they're vaccinated. Well, um, most of transmission actually occurs in these household gatherings, yep. vaccinated, unvaccinated. And it's also just unrealistic so, to be like, oh, you can never go anywhere with people whose vaccine status you don't know. It's like, have you ever lived? Have you ever been a human being? It's, it's just not realistic. By the way, one of your other wish list items in your tweet was including officially prior infection, natural immunity as a form of immunity. Walensky was asked about that on a special report last night, and she just gave this water-treading answer. So you might have to wait for a while on some of these wish list items, Doctor, but we appreciate you coming by anyway. Always enjoy it, Dr. Sapphire. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nicole Sapphire on The Guy Benson Show, resuming after this short break. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in to The Guy Benson Show. Here's one of those stories that just inspires confidence. Headline, foxbusiness.com. COVID relief fraud nears $100 billion, Secret Service says. Secret Service says it has recovered more than $1.2 billion in fraudulently obtained funds. So they've recovered more than a billion in this fraud. But according to them... There's about $99 billion more that has been paid out or distributed in an unlawful way through fraud. That is a staggering number that I had to read two or three times to make sure that I was reading it correctly. From the story, the release of COVID-19 federal relief funds has unleashed a wave of individuals and criminal networks responsible for what the Secret Service says is nearly $100 billion in stolen benefits. So they are, I guess, tasked with recovering as much of this money as they can. And according to the special agent in charge of this effort, it's based in Jacksonville, Florida, the Secret Service has more than 900 active criminal investigations currently into pandemic-related relief fraud. Quote, every state has been hit, some harder than others. The Secret Service is hitting the ground running, trying to recover everything we can, including funds stolen from both federal and state programs. It's just a staggering number. And I guess this is what happens when you have an emergency and the federal government is just shoveling as much cash out the window as they possibly can. There are going to be unscrupulous people who say this is an opportunity for me. There's a lot of cash being thrown around very fast. We're in a state of emergency. People are kind of in a panic. Let me cash in. Let me take advantage of this. And I guess a lot of people have. I'm glad that they're trying to track them down. I hope that the people responsible are nervous that there are 900 active investigations. But if there's $100 billion worth of fraud, $100 billion worth of fraud, and they've recovered $1.2 billion so far, there's probably going to be a lot of criminals who get away with it. And look, I get it. In an emergency, we're shutting down the economy. People need help. Sometimes there's not time to build in perfect safeguards. But that number stopped me in my tracks. 
That is an arresting figure. $100 billion in fraud. A rounding error in Washington, D.C., but a hell of a lot of money. Our middle hour on The Guy Benson Show continues as soon as we come back. Josh Krasauer on Build Back Better and 2022. That analysis straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the show and halfway through the week on The Guy Benson Show, thank you very much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, and we are getting ever closer to Christmas. Very delighted to have you here during this holiday week, and delighted to welcome back Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, good to have you back. Hey, Guy, good to be back on the show. I want to get your big picture takeaways on what we've seen play out really since Sunday and that Sunday morning FNS interview between Brett Baer and Joe Manchin. I know Democrats are sort of scrambling to try to put the pieces back together to some extent and have perhaps some kind of salvaged path forward for the new year. There was a phone call among Senate Democrats last night. Sounds like the president and Manchin spoke. Where does this thing stand? Is Build Back Better dead? And is the fact that they're talking about electoral reform and filibuster reform maybe a signal that they're perhaps feeling desperate given the whip count for those things? Yeah, there's still a lot of denial in in the Democratic caucus in Washington before the holidays. Uh, Look, is it possible that you could have a very pared back version of Build Back Better that reemerges in the new year? Sure. Um, Joe Manchin, though, if, if he wanted to get to yes for his own political interests, he would have done that a while ago, and he would have used his leverage long before today. Um, he, he's already reaped a lot of political reward in West Virginia by being the resistor to the Biden agenda. He's winning support in a very Republican state, and the notion that he kind of go back on his word would, would not make a whole lot of sense. I, I think you have a lot of progressives in, in on Capitol Hill, who need to have this delusion that that somehow their their two biggest priorities, you know, this big spending package and, and the and the voting the voting bill are going to be passed. I I, I think the Biden administration, meanwhile, is, is at risk of keeping this delusion alive and not being able to move forward with their own agenda, not being able to reset in a more productive fashion. You don't you don't want to start the new year having deja vu all over again. Yeah, it's like having, having like the corpse of this legislation just twisting in the wind for weeks or even months with even more drama and recriminations and anger and resentment, especially if Manchin is never going to agree to something. I mean, maybe they could agree to something that would be so slimmed down that then you'd probably have a bunch of threats and finger pointing from the progressives, whether they'd follow through or not. There'd be a lot of consternation and complaints on that front. It just seems like they'd be setting themselves up for more pain. And I just don't understand. I mean, Chuck Schumer saying, well, we're going to have a vote because I guess that was the hot talking point on leftist Twitter for you know a few hours. So Schumer rushed out and said, OK, we're going to have a vote on Build Back Better. And the people who I saw most excited about that ultimatum were Republicans. Look, guy, they're terrified of their own base. Schumer is literally putting 
his most vulnerable senators on the record for a bill that's not going to pass simply to placate a very vocal and small number of, of, of progressive left-wing activists. It makes very little sense unless he, he truly is scared that AOC is going to primary him in, in the state of New York in the run-up to his re-election. But it makes no strategic sense for him, for his caucus, for, for keeping the majority in Democratic hands in, in 2022. Do you think they back away? Do you think they sort of wake up Christmas morning or the day after and say, all right, let's just um, – that whole thing I was saying about forcing a vote on Build Back Better, what we meant was you know something totally different. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think a more productive path, at least strategically, would be to break things up into small pieces and, and figure out, well, what is the one thing that's most politically popular that can pass that, that at least we can change the message on, 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 on this whole Build Back Better agenda with? I mean, now, you'd have your own difficulty getting enough votes to pass anything else either, but, but they're stuck with this super ambitious bill that no one really seems to like, no one understands being in the public. And, you know, by, by trying to keep hope alive with Manchin when he's pretty clearly not changing his mind, not moving at all. They're just letting down their, their, their supporters even more, and they're really risking a, a very disillusioned and dispirited Democratic electorate come 2022. Josh, I saw some of your reaction on social media to what the White House decided to do over the course of the last few days. And we had Senator McConnell on this show earlier in the week, and he sort of shared your mystified reaction to the White House putting out sort of a pretty nasty personal statement questioning the honesty and integrity of Joe Manchin, whose vote they still need, as I've pointed out multiple times, they still need his vote for everything in a 50-50 Senate. McConnell couldn't believe that they went that direction. He said it's not what he would do. He said it was not smart. He said it was vitriol. He said they effectively called him a liar, which is, I mean, true. That's what they did. And it sort of begs the question, what exactly was the uh, the end game here? McConnell decided to try to press the advantage a little bit. He was musing about whether Manchin would be more comfortable in the Republican Party, whether he's really a fit over there anymore. He told me it doesn't sound like the Democrats even want him over there. He said, we'd love to have him. What do you think of that? Is there any chance Manchin might bolt either as an independent or as a Republican, given his treatment, given the direction that his state has headed in terms of the partisan breakdown, if there were ever a moment to do it, 2022 would probably be it, right? Yeah, I still think it's very hard to see Joe Manchin change parties, at least certainly to become a Republican, I don't see very likely, because number one, he'd lose all the leverage he has over you know the Biden agenda. He'd lose the power that he really uh, has craved, I, I think, in the last year. He, he is the swing vote in the Senate. And if he became, gave Mitch McConnell the majority, if he was one of 51 Republican senators, uh, he would lose a lot, a lot of influence, even though he may, you know, he may get a committee chairmanship for, for a year. You know, that just doesn't seem to really benefit him in the short term. Now, I, I, you know, I think maybe he did disaffiliates with, from the Democratic Party or becomes an independent who maybe caucuses with the, with the Democrats or maybe could do something to give McConnell the gavel. But even then, I, I really think he enjoys being the swing vote. I he wonder— I wonder, yeah, Josh, because now that you're saying this, of course, that makes sense in terms of the timeline that we're discussing, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But think about this. If the Republicans can win back the majority in 22, and there's a Republican Senate in 23, and Manchin is thinking about running for re-election, let's say, in 24, might that be more tempting for him? That's at least something to think about. And relatedly, Josh, let me ask you this. In that interview with Mitch McConnell that we did here on the show, he sounded 
notably more bullish about the GOP's chances of winning not just the House, which seems not quite a fait accompli, but I think most people would guess that is a highly probable outcome. He sounded increasingly bullish, much more so than I've heard in the last few cycles, that Republicans are well positioned to win the Senate as well. And McConnell isn't someone who really goes out on limbs. He's someone who is extremely calm and calculating. So my ears perked up when he started talking that way. And lo and behold, today you were reporting on some new, and NBC News had this as well, some new polling out of a couple really important battleground Senate states where Republicans at least nominally look like in the early going, they've got a good chance at flipping some seats. What do you make of that dynamic? I know it's a ways off, but, you know, the data points start to matter the closer you get to the election. Yeah, the, the environment has never been this good for Republicans, even going back to 2010. Uh, the combination of a disillusioned Democratic voting base, along with a lot of swing voters turning against the, the extremism, frankly, of, the, of the, the way the Democratic Party has moved, has created this sort of perfect storm. Now, a year is a long time in politics. Things can change. But McConnell sees the same polling that we do. Uh, the, the two polls you're talking about, Guy, are, are sent the Republican Senate Campaign Committee uh, commissioned two surveys, one in Georgia showing Herschel Walker up by one point in that Senate race against Raphael Warnock. In Nevada, which is a state and a, and a race I think a lot of people have slept on, Adam Laxalt, the, the likely Republican nominee, is up by four points against Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. And she's at, what, like, she's at like 42 as an 42, incumbent. By the way, Biden's disapproval rating in Georgia and Nevada, over 55%, both those states. Yeah, That is a, a, a toxic number. It was higher than what, what Obama had going into the 2010 midterms in those states. It, it is a, a major, major red flag. And, and the, like I said, I don't understand what Schumer's plan is to help his vulnerable senators. He should be worrying about his own majority, well, not trying to placate the far left in, 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 in deluding them about Build Back Better. Two other little interesting nuggets for you, Josh, to react to. We had Governor Sununu on the show yesterday from New Hampshire, and I asked him if he had any second thoughts about passing on that Senate race. He said, absolutely not. Uh, you know, the more I think about it, the more I didn't want to be in Washington, D.C. But he did tell me, because I asked him about Senator Hassan, the incumbent Democrat, he said he is absolutely convinced that she is beatable and so beatable that that actually played into his calculus, his decision when he was weighing whether or not to run. He said she is in such trouble as an incumbent. I think lesser known Republican challengers would have a good chance of beating her. It's not just, you know, Sununu or Bust. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he told me. And if you look at some of the polling, I don't think at least at this stage he's that far off. So that's nugget number one. Nugget number two a journalist that I always pay attention to out in Nevada is John Ralston. Even when I don't like what he's saying or disagree or wish he was saying something else, he's got a pretty good sense of where that state is politically. And I've seen him now for weeks sort of waving a red flag for Democrats, saying the environment on the ground in this state is changing. There are people flipping party registrations to the Republicans. He was flagging the Laxalt poll in that race that you just mentioned as if it's, you know, credible, because he'd be the first one to say this might be Republican polling, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't sit well with me. I think that the reality is very different. Now, he was saying basically endorsing, saying something's happening here. When you look at New Hampshire and you look at Nevada, at least for now, and all the caveats about we're a long way off and many things can change and a month is an eternity in politics, let alone 11 months and all that. 
the map seems to be at least theoretically expanding for Republicans right now, which is probably where you want to be if you're McConnell and company. Yeah, so let's start with Nevada. John Ralston, always right. And and the two things fundamentally about Nevada that really are a little bit uh, worrisome for, for Democrats is the two big constituency groups in the state, working class voters, Hispanic voters, are both among the biggest groups swinging away from the Democratic Party over the last few years. That That's a big red flag. It was a very close race in 2020. A lot of people thought Biden was going to win Nevada easily. It was very close. All the polling, all the data, all the fundamentals show a lot of Republican momentum in that state. New Hampshire, you know, Sununu is sort of half right. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone, any generic Republican could automatically win the state. You do have to have a good campaign. Yeah, and he didn't say that. Incredible. Yeah, he didn't say it's yeah. like a layup no matter what. But he's convinced that it's entirely plausible for someone who may not be, you know, quite as well known as he is. There's a reason why they were trying to get him to be the nominee. He's saying it doesn't have to be me. Others could probably pull this off. And look, it's a personal decision for him. He he would have been the favorite in this environment if he chose to run. I don't know if I would say that for any of the other possible names that are being mentioned in that race. They certainly could win. The environment is very favorable uh, just because of the, the national mood for Republicans in New Hampshire. But but I don't think it's a layup. I think it would take a little more work and effort and making sure you don't have a not ready for prime time candidate, which you never know with someone who hasn't run for office before. Yep. And but the map is, and I would add Colorado is another state that I, I Michael Bennett, the, you know, two term uh, senator. Uh, you know, I think he he, he Colorado is a state that's moving in, that's moved in a democratic direction. But it, like Virginia, there's some interesting uh, cross currents in, in the state, and that's going to be a race Republicans as a sleeper race. Yes, and as, as regular listeners to this program know, I have my finger on the pulse of Colorado, my fake home state where I am fake running for governor. I don't know if you saw that ridiculous Twitter thread, Josh, but I can let me give you a scoop for National Journal and Against the Grain. Uh, I'm not running. Last thing on the House side, because we've been focused on the Senate. I think you and I will probably have lots of conversations about the Senate races between now and next November. But this week, what was it, three in one day? Retirement announcements from incumbents in the House on the Democratic side. Three in one day even before the holidays, is quite something. And when one of those three is a rising star, Stephanie Murphy, Florida, that is just you know another, I would say, warning sign out there for the Democrats, right? It's hard to spin that. Yeah, actions speak as loudly as polls. And when you have one of your most talented, moderate lawmakers, Stephanie Murphy, sorry, Stephanie Murphy, is one of the, I think, one of the most effective, most politically talented folks in the House. And she, part, of the, part of it's redistricting and the fact that she may not have the same district to run in. But part of it is that she was just getting frustrated at having to deal with the progressives and the Democratic Party, that she constantly had to kind of really fight for her own interests, her district's interests. Um, you know, the politics, she knows the politics, she knows the district's changing, but she's also had a lot of frustrations with the direction of her own party. I, I think she, she's not don't, don't forget the name. She's probably going to reemerge at some point in Florida politics. But um, it is a sign of the environment, the sign of the public mood towards the Biden administration that someone as talented and moderate as, as Stephanie Murphy has decided to hang it up and not run for re-election. Josh Krasauer is politics editor at National Journal. I mentioned his column, Against the Grain. You can also hear his analysis all the time around here. He's a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, always enjoy having you. Happy holidays to you, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Have a, have a great holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Appreciate it. Josh Crossauer on The Guy Benson Show. One more point about Joe Biden and Joe Manchin. 
White House had to clean up after the president again. We'll explain next. Guy Benson will be right back. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, Joey Jones joins me coming up in the next hour, our happy hour. So stay tuned for that. I want to play you this soundbite. It was from yesterday. President Biden, we actually carried some of his Q&A at the tail end of his COVID speech. One of the questions was about Build Back Better and Joe Manchin, that whole situation that we were just breaking down with Josh Krasauer. And Biden gave this answer in which he appeared to assert that Joe Manchin in private admitted to misleading progressive Democrats. Here's what the president said in Cut 16. Joe went on TV today, and uh, I don't know whether it's TV or not, I'm told he was speaking to the Liberal caucus in the House and said, Joe Biden didn't mislead you, I misled you. So that's what Biden is attributing to Manchin. That Manchin supposedly went to the Liberal caucus, sort of the lefty members in the House, and was defending Biden by saying, no, no, Biden didn't mislead you. I, meaning Manchin, misled you. And when Biden said that, I was like, wait a second, that does not sound right. Manchin has not misled anyone. Manchin was actually extremely transparent. He put the whole list out. He gave it to Chuck Schumer. Schumer signed the document. Manchin was out there in public giving statements about his concerns, his red lines, all of it. It doesn't sound like after getting called a liar, basically by Jen Psaki in the White House on Sunday, that Manchin would then turn around and go to the progressives who trash him every day and say, oh, no, I misled you in an effort to defend the president. That sounded like a made up Joe Biden story. And guess what? It was a made up Joe Biden story. The White House cleaning up within a matter of hours with one spokesman saying, quote, the president wanted to clarify that Senator Manchin did not characterize himself as having been misleading. So that's not really a clarification. That is exactly the opposite of what Joe Biden said happened. Biden, in trying to deflect blame away, put words in the mouth of Joe Manchin that were never said. And it probably really royally ticked off Joe Manchin, basically being called a liar again by the Biden White House. So then they had to walk it back. What a crack team of savvy professionals we have over at the White House in this administration. The president who's been in Washington forever, does he know how any of this works? Final hour coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So close to Christmas, you can almost taste it. What you can taste here in the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show is the Finnish Long Drink, which sponsors this hour every single day, our friends over at the Long Drink. Check them out if you haven't already. Just really good stuff. Delicious. Drink responsibly. 21 plus only, of course. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold in your neck of the woods. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is for all ages. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is always free, on demand, 
No charge to you each and every day. Should you miss a moment of the show as it airs 3 to 6 p.m. across the country. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all of it. As we kick off our final hour of today's show and I get ready to scurry over to television, I'll be hosting Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there. We are happy on the radio to welcome back Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation and also the podcast Proud American. Joey, welcome back. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, brother. How's it going? Thanks for having me on today. Merry it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's great to have you back. We're doing well. I wanted to ask you a few different things, and your invite to come on the show was really sparked and inspired by a tweet that you posted last evening on your feed, and it's two photographs. One is of you in a hospital bed looking very banged up after the attack that you suffered while serving abroad, and then the next one is of you in your holiday finest, you're wearing a tux, you've got the bow tie on, big smile, and that's, of course, much more recent. And here's what you said, your caption for these two photos. I wake up every day and wrestle anger, resentment, and sadness. Thankfully, I have joy, hope, and love in my corner. Feed the good wolf. You don't need to find hope. You merely need to choose. Two pictures, same circumstance, same man, Fate is a choice. And I thought that was a really powerful and moving tweet. And it's also a reminder that even though it's this wonderful time of year, as the song goes, the most wonderful, in fact, and people have warm and fuzzies and family and gifts and all of that, for many people, it's been a tough year overall. And the holidays can actually be harder if they are missing someone in their life. If they've had a difficult time for some reason, seeing everyone else carrying on and feeling the spirit with a smile on their face and getting excited for Christmas or New Year's and and you don't have that in your life, that's actually can be really hard on people and really tax their mental health. And it seems like you wanted to maybe send a message to some of those people. What caused you to send this tweet and what were you trying to convey beyond just the words that you wrote? Yeah, man, I I appreciate you bringing it up and asking the question that way. And I think uh, the best analogy I can give is you know, we watch movies, and a lot of times we see, um, you know, military leaders and ins- inspiring people on a horse on a hill, watching the troops down below fight. They've got their hand in the air, yelling commands. And the truth is, the inspirational leaders are the ones down there with with their elbows up in the middle of the fight. And so, if I post something on Twitter or Instagram in, in that vein, it's because I'm struggling that day, and I had to tell myself that and think, you know, if I can figure this out, maybe I can help somebody else figure it out too. And uh, and so for me, it's it's real simple. I'm sitting here, I'm looking at a, a lot of work I want to do with the few weeks I have at home because you know how the, the travel schedule can be when you work in, in the world we work in. Yep. And I had a really busy November and December. And uh, because of a few reasons, I ended up with an extra week at home. And I'm sitting here looking at this list of things I want to do. And then I realized, you know what, I can get to like maybe half of this because I do things much slower. I have to wait till somebody can help me out. I have this reason. I have that reason. These things that just kind of are, aren't, they're not prohibitive. I wouldn't call them restrictive, but they definitely slow me down and cause me to need help. And then I just took that moment to say, you know what, like, what kind of a blessing is it that one, I have people that will come help me out. I, I have, you know, means to go buy that tool I need to do it that helps me get it done. Because I'm a, I'm a home improvement, make things with my hands kind of guy. And really that's kind of where my mind was at. It, it was one of those things where it's like, 
everything else in life is the exact same way. You, you have something in front of you, and it can be a burden or a blessing, and it's really just up to your perspective. You're sitting in traffic. You're late for somewhere. You can be upset that you're going to be late, or you can tune the radio to your favorite song, the temperature to your favorite comfort, and realize the worst thing about your day is you're going to be comfortable and entertained longer than you wanted to be. And, and that's the power perspective. And, you know, I, I get an opportunity to speak about this a lot. But when I have an opportunity that it, it happens to me and I have to make that choice that I preach about, then I want to brag on that, too, because it means it works. And if it works for me, I'm sure it works for other people, too. I would simply say that if you're stuck in traffic and you're running late, we would recommend tuning the radio to The Guy Benson Show. That's the one tweak that I would offer to, to the scenario that you just like painted. <laughs> and I want to just quickly digress before we come back to the serious stuff. You said you're sort of a do-it-yourself kind of guy, home improvement. Do you have, because folks who are, oriented that way, always have a project, either in mind or underway. Do you have a current DIY project that you're doing? Yeah, I have a I have a woodworking room. So my dad built the house I lived in. He built my grandparents' house by hand. He was a brick and block mason by trade, but if you know anything about that work, you can't do it when the when the weather drops below freezing, so you have to have other skills. And so my dad was more of a of a framing kind of guy, frame a house up, and I've learned how to do the finished stuff. So I'm about to put two, uh, I guess we call them built-in gun cabinets when you walk into my house. So one side will be rifles, the other side will be shotguns. And I'm the kind of guy that I think about it and plan it out for several weeks. That way I can get it done when I decide to do it. And so I've got this little wood shop in my basement. I've been actually building tools to use to build with. And uh, and after Christmas, once the decorations come down, I get permission. and be knocking holes in the wall and putting gun cabinets in the wall. So I'm excited about that. That is so completely opposite my personal experience in every conceivable way, but it's very on brand for you, and the lack of that is very on brand for me, I would say, Joey. So, come, Yes, sir. Coming back to your tweet and the message behind it, because you give these speeches, because you go around talking to people about overcoming adversity, you lost your legs in war, you're very you know, public and open about that, and you say sometimes things take you a little bit longer, take a little bit slower – and you're often that source of hope and that ray of sunshine and light for people, which is great. But as you just noted, sometimes it's you. You're the one who needs the help. You're the one that needs to be lifted up. And coming back to your own principles and your own mantras, that, of course, has to be valuable. But are there people that you rely on? Are there folks that you'll text or call or talk to when you're having a difficult time and not being afraid to sort of reach out and be a little bit vulnerable. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I really appreciate you pointing to that. The truth is it, it becomes a really heavy responsibility when people look at you for a source of inspiration. Now that's not to say that I take it for granted, but you know, you, you don't get to have a bad day. If everybody's looking at you for their good day, it's mm-hmm. kind of how it feels sometimes. But w- one of the magic things about it was I realized having a bad day is not only okay for them, but it's okay for me. And sometimes people connect with me better when they know that I feel the same things they feel and experience the same things they do. So usually it's those same people that you might say I inspire that inspire me back. Cause I guarantee you, I've read almost every comment on that post you were just talking about and the things people say really helped me a lot. I mean, it's a little, the best way I connected to people is I, I might stand in front of an audience of a hundred to 10,000 and uh, you know, not 10,000 lately, but at one point in my life before COVID and uh and I might say something like, you know, you have all this reverence for me because I lost my legs in war, but I've gone on to, to have a fulfilled life and what some people might say an, an exceptionally successful life. 
But the point there is, in that audience, in that moment, I don't care if it's 100 people or 10,000, I really don't. There are people that lost their parents way too early, people that filed for divorce when they didn't think they were going to go down that road, people that had filed for bankruptcy, people that lost a child, people that have cancer. And the truth is they're all in that room, and whatever we're celebrating that night, they're celebrating it too. And so if you need to find adversity, if you need to find inspiration to get through adversity or people that have figured it out, Look no further than the people around you because all those things are represented in your life every single day. And every group of people you walk into, even if it's the ones you don't like sometimes, they've been through it. That's the human experience. That, that is so consistent in our lives that it's really the, the exception is the moments where we find someone who hasn't been through something like that. And then we start to worry, like, well, you know, are you for real? <laughs> so the truth is we've all been through it. We've all been through the ringer. That's a part of it, of existence on this life. We're the only animal that's adapted our entire environment to suit us rather than adapt ourselves to suit the environment we're in. And through that comes a lot of adversity. And, uh, and we, in our probably most ingenious adaptation is our emotional intelligence and our ability to lean towards each other to get through things. And, um, and that's something we all have. I, I just happen to be public about mine. I just happen to have a platform for mine, but don't think for a minute, I don't gain inspiration from the people walking around me. And, and that's who everyone should look to. Joey, I want to ask you this because we were talking on yesterday's show quite a lot about Christmas plans and some of the upheaval and uncertainty surrounding Omicron and what if people test positive and are certain things getting shut down and are people having their Christmas plans sort of yanked from underneath them again. It stirred a thought in my mind about the many people, men and women serving this country who know for a fact they will not be home for Christmas. They will not see their loved ones this week for Christmas because they are deployed. How many Christmases were you deployed for? And what is that like to be abroad so far away from your family and friends on a holiday that in so many ways is about family and friends in addition to, of course, the huge religious connotations? You know, I had the fortune and misfortune of deploying mostly during the summer, which the fortune there is I got to spend the, the big holidays at home and the misfortune is that's when all the fighting happens. So I don't know if anybody <laughs> planned that out on purpose for me or what, but I only spent one Christmas deployed and then one Christmas in the hospital um, out of eight years in the Marine Corps. So I, I lucked out on that respect. But I can tell you, for those that are, that are deployed, I think that what's great about it is, yes, you do long to be home, but you also get reminded of what this is about. And you realize, hey, you know what, I'm pretty lucky. I'm sitting here among people that literally die for me. I'm sitting here among people who are going through what I'm going through, um, it, not just because this is a holiday, but because we're at war or we're forward deployed or we're somewhere way away from home right now. Even if we're not in immediate danger, it's not a lot of fun. I mean, you can go do a training exercise on the island of Kona in Hawaii, the big island, and it's not very fun. You're sitting on lava rocks living in a tent. You're in Hawaii, but you don't know it. And so... There's a lot of experiences that, that on their face aren't pleasant that our military goes through every year and every day in some places, but there's something simple and amazing about it. When you're sitting around a card table playing something like spades with a bunch of people with three other guys or gals or guys and gals, that outside of that environment, you'd have nothing else in common, but right there you are on a holiday that maybe not even all of you celebrate, and there's a feeling of family and appreciation that you have these people in your life. And I'll tell you what, if you don't learn something from that and bring it back with you, that's the big failure. You know, we always have a responsibility, those of us that serve. Yes, we sacrifice, but we also signed up to have this responsibility that never leaves us just because the uniform does. And that responsibility is we got to see behind the curtain. And, and I 
tweeted an analogy earlier today. You know, if you if you ever have a chance to peek behind the curtain, take it because you'll find that maybe the world isn't as magical as it was when you had that kind of ambivalence or ignorance or or bliss of not knowing. But then you also learn the wizard isn't that scary either. Obviously, this is a Wizard of Oz analogy. But the idea of being once you go to combat and you experience how dangerous life can be, when you come home, you're not ever going to forget that. So you're not ever going to be able to just let your guard down and kind of walk through this world with your face buried in your phone or, or without any care in the world. As much as that may seem like a negative, it also allows you to see the world for what it is and appreciate those good moments, those safe moments, the moments that your family are at your house and nothing's going to hurt anybody in that home. And so everything that's negative can have a positive. That's really the underlying issue there. And the responsibility we have in the military is we had that experience that not all Americans get to have. And our responsibility is to come home and, one, share it with others so they understand the gravity of just living in this world, and, two, appreciate things and try to help others appreciate it in a way that very few can. I can tell you, you know, when it comes to material things, I've amassed things, and it's fun to have them, but they could all be gone tomorrow, and what's important to me won't change, and what, and what I enjoy the most will still be there. And sometimes you got to go through some stuff to get to that point, and if you can help other people feel that way, Man, that's a responsibility that's worth having. Yeah, well said. Joey Jones, last subject. I hope it's not a sore one. I have to ask you this, since we probably won't have you back on the show before the new year. The University of Georgia Bulldogs, are they going to beat Michigan? And if so, do they have what it takes to actually win the rematch, or is it just going to be Bama again? (laughs) Do they have what it takes? They absolutely have what it takes. Um, I think uh, with Michigan, it's going to be a fun game because the teams are built very similar. They both want to run the ball first, and they both want to lean into their defense. And Michigan's done a fantastic job of that as of late. And the last time Georgia took the field, they did neither one of those things very well. Um, You know, you can't look at the 12 games before Alabama and say that Georgia doesn't have what it takes. It just depends on how they get coached. I think I love Coach Kirby Smart and the whole staff. I think Georgia got out coached by the best in the business and the best there's ever been. And I don't think they're going to let that happen twice. So will they beat Michigan? I think they will. Will they beat Alabama in a rematch if it gets there? I think it will be a much different game. I, I don't know if they'll come out on top, but I think, uh, hey, I'm proud of them. They went 12-0, and and, uh, and I'm proud of my Bulldogs. I've got my Gs flying everywhere. Yeah, I mean, look, they're in the playoff, and anything can happen. And, I mean, Michigan, they are peaking at the right time, you could say. They're very talented. They finally got the monkey off their back with Ohio State. Uh, so they'll be fired up to represent the Big Ten Conference. You guys, Georgia, excellent, excellent, excellent football team. I don't think they'll be looking past Michigan, but I think the whole country is wondering, can anyone topple Alabama, including Cincinnati, in you know the first game uh, in that playoff? We'll be watching very closely. I'm really torn on the Georgia-Michigan game. I'm a Big Ten guy, but some of my best friends are Georgia fans. So we'll see how I'm feeling in the moment, who I'm rooting for. But I know who you will be rooting for, the red and the black Go dogs all the way, at least down in Georgia, and our listeners listening on 106.3 Extra in Atlanta. Joey, always great to talk to you, sir. Have a very, very Merry Christmas. Absolutely. You guys, too. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's a very merry happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, chugging toward Christmas. Thanks for being here. So we did this story last night on Gutfeld, which was a blast, by the way. I had a lot of fun. It was very loose. It went, it just flew by. So thanks to those of you who watched and reached out. Apparently there's some studies. So who knows how accurate this really is. But studies say that during the pandemic, we collectively as a society, we are cursing more. We are swearing more. And I wonder if that's actually true. 
So we decide that we would reach out and check in with the member of our team who just swears like a sailor. The mouth on this kid, it's unbelievable. Quiet Wyatt joins us from Washington, D.C. Wyatt, is it true that your already significant cursing problem has only spiraled during COVID? Uh, yes, Guy. I, I have to say I totally agree with the findings in this article. So you're saying that the study, in your view, is not bullshit? That's true. I, I think that everyone, you know, working from home the way we all did, it kind of it blends in with the way you are at home to the way you are at work and your brain gets confused mm-hmm. and sometimes you slip a little. Yep. And I can just say this because Wyatt just the other day when I was back in D.C., Wyatt was over on the other side of the studio and then he came out in the hallway and he stubbed his toe and he looked down and unleashed a tirade, just a torrent of foul language. He said, what the fudge? Darn you to heck. And whatever he tripped over. And I was like, wow, Wyatt, calm down. We have to get some soap, young man. So sounds like he's buying into this. He's just totally off the rails with his language these days. I don't know what happened to Wyatt. He's been hanging around producer Christine too much. No, I'm just kidding. She says the real words. We'll be right back. It's a special extended home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. And if you're listening on the broadcast live, this song is sort of the jazz piano version of A Christmas Tree. Is this from Charlie Brown Christmas? Yeah. Oh, it's just so relaxing. It makes me want to just curl up with some hot cocoa by the fire. Listen to it. Christine's already taking out her flask for a little nip. I can picture it. Of course, that would be both of us in the same house at Christmas. So, no, this is clearly a bad dream. Welcome back. That was weird. Glad to have you here. It's a great song, though. That whole soundtrack is great. My mom would listen to that a lot when we were growing up. She had the CD of it. And I like it. But I don't necessarily like it for the 32nd day in a row. So I think we had to limit playing the Charlie Brown's Christmas soundtrack. But it really is, honestly, very, very good. I've already gone off the rails in this segment. What I was going to do, and what I will do in a moment, is confess something. But first, I'll remind you that the podcast is always available for free at GuyBensonShow.com and remind you to please tune into Kennedy tonight. I'll be guest hosting 7 p.m. Eastern Fox Business Network. Great lineup. We got the panel. We got Dr. Sapphire. If you didn't get enough Sapphire on this show, Katie Pavlich rolling in. It's going to be fun. So, the confession. And before we go here, I just want to say spoiler alert to anyone in my immediate family. So, if you're listening to the show and you are one of four people, you know who you are, plus Adam, tune out, tune away. Turn off the radio because I don't want you to know what I'm about to say involving Christmas gifts. Okay, so I'll give you a moment to click and go elsewhere. Perfect. Okay, I have bought zero Christmas gifts for anyone. None. Which is only technically true because certain things I have agreed to or have previously done. 
So Adam wanted new dishware, like new dishes, new everything. He did not like what we have been using for years. So before Thanksgiving, we went to a nice store in the neighborhood, got two full sets. And it was not cheap. And we went that early because we wanted to use some of them for Thanksgiving, which we did. And they looked great. So that at the time, I said, this is your Christmas gift. If you feel strongly about it and you really want it, this is your Christmas gift. He said, great. We also have a few trips planned that I've got you know, his flights for and that sort of thing. So that's the gift, but that's not going to be under the tree unless I go and wrap literally one of the like side plates, right, a salad plate, put a bow on it and say, remember, this was the deal. So that's what I've got for him. For my parents, I got them tickets to A Christmas Carol at Forge Theater back when they were in town for Thanksgiving. We are also treating them to a very nice dinner Christmas Eve. So that's kind of the Christmas gift there. My brother I've got taken care of. My sister wanted me to help with a flight on a trip with her friends. So we were going to book that together. So there's nothing that's going to be physically under the tree. I just have been a little bit behind this year. Like even I do holiday and Christmas bonuses for our little team here at the Guy Benson Show. Everyone works really hard. And I think in years past, I've at least gotten a card and then written something nice and a little note, even to producer Christine saying how hard they work and how appreciative I am and all that. This year, I literally just handed all of them a folded in half check. Like, here you go. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Which is totally fine. You're fine with that? No card was okay with you? The check was fine. (laughs) Okay, you're you're satisfied with that. I'm glad to hear it. So the question is like, it's not that I have not done Christmas gift things. It's not like no gifts exist at all. What the truth is, I just don't have anything physical to wrap, put the bow, the little, you know, from guy to none of those exist. So our Christmas tree will have gifts underneath, none of which are coming from me. And I felt like I just had to say that out loud because I'm feeling kind of guilty about it, even though I don't necessarily think that I should. It's not like I just decided not to give anyone gifts for Christmas. Everyone's getting something. It's just not a tangible, wrappable thing. And I'm up here in New York, away from home for the days all the way leading up until pretty late tomorrow night. Then all of a sudden, it's Christmas Eve. So I suppose I could go and do some last-minute minor things on Christmas Eve. But I also got like, you know, the beef tenderloin for Christmas Day, which is five pounds, and very expensive. And like, it's expensive to host, something that I'm learning. Also, the Christmas party that we hosted, that our team was at. I mean, that's, Christine's shaking her head. That's over. I'm so angry at you right now. I have so many thoughts. You can't count the meat you buy as a Christmas present. No, I'm not saying that it's a Christmas present. I'm just saying I, that is going to be one of my checklist chores that I have to do tomorrow that would potentially preclude me from getting like a little bauble or a book or something just to have under the tree. I don't know. I, I feel like you think that I am doing something borderline monstrous here. Kind of. Um, This is why when you and I spoke 
back in, I don't know, October, November about getting to a mall, going Christmas shopping, buying presents. No, I never do that. I offered to meet you at a mall so we could go shopping together like we best friends do. live in the same state. Well, we could have figured out a state to meet in. Could have went to Delaware and went shopping. I feel like you definitely need to get something for under, first of all, the dishes, no, no. That was the gift. No, that's not a gift. That is for both of you. It was hundreds of dollars. Listen, I'm telling you right now, that'd be like Bobby buying that Dyson for me back. Oh, the Dyson. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's gone. It's there. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. But that would be like him buying that and putting it under the tree for Christmas. But that's what you wanted. And it was a I didn't want it for Christmas. I just wanted it. You wanted it for the household. In life. And it's an expensive gift. And if he had gotten that (laughs) to you, something that you wanted. That you had expressed a desire for. Not for Christmas. But we had also agreed that this was the Christmas present. I just, I don't love it. I think you can go get him a little something. Now, you are, I mean, you're a few days out. So it's kind of, you're not really getting much. But I will tell you what you can buy. Every single one of your family. Everybody is 21 and over, correct? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm going to say. A go book. Go to a liquor store. I'm just, of course, you're going to say booze. But that's the thing. I have tons of booze in my house that they will be drinking. Oh, oh, personalized flasks. You can get to things remembered. Do you know that? Remember that store in the mall? I don't really. Where you we get don't engra- need, We don't really do flasks. We have no need for flasks. Everybody could use a flask. Well, I don't know if that's actually true. Uh, now, like, do I have to go over to a bookstore and get, like, Books for people. We have a cute little boutique in the neighborhood. Maybe I could get a little something just for my mom. One, yeah, just something definitely for your mom. Maybe I could just take them. Like here, come and you know, get something no, that you no, want. No, no, we're not going to do that. Or you can, um, oh, I know what uh, people love, like especially moms. Go get like a picture of you and your mother and like frame it, you know? I, that's a nice idea. It's just a little bit probably late in the game for that. No, you could go to CVS. You got a framed photo of us? Well, you'd have to go get the frame. Like, you have to go to home. Do you know? Have you ever been to a home goods? I've been with my mother actually to a home goods. Yeah. (laughs) So, see, this is all stuff I could have helped you with. Just saying. Except, I just, I feel a little bad that I won't have anything wrapped, but I also don't think that I've done anything wrong. Like, I think that people are getting things that they want, people are getting things that they've asked for. Parents are hard to buy for in general, but. You know, we've done a lot. You can also... Like, I'm talking myself out of feeling guilty. You are. You are. So Maybe you, I shouldn't even call this a confession. Maybe I should call this a proud announcement. You're just trying to reassure yourself you did the right thing. Yeah, I think that's right. My therapist would have said that. Wow, I actually listened to something she said. Um, <laughs> you know what we're doing? So my mom had uh, bought herself an iPhone, and it was pricey. So she said, just throw me money for that, you know? So I was like, well, I'm not going to just give you money on Christmas Eve for that. So what I did was like I got a box and had Megan like, you know, draw something and then we wrapped it. So it's like a little present. Do you know what I'm saying? So she has. And then I obviously I got her other things because I don't listen. You know, we each in the family, we each have a, a limit like, you know, for my sister, we each give each other like a dollar limit. Yeah, like a hundred dollars. And then I just like and that's it. And you just blow right past. Oh, gosh, I just blow right by that. And then Bobby, he sees all the presents and just starts getting angry. It sounds like Megan just makes out like a bandit. Megan 
Okay. If Bobby and Megan are listening right now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Because you have some inside scoop on what she's getting, not just from you, but maybe also from, from Santa as well. Yeah. And in fairness, Megan, I think, deserves a lot given, you know, what she puts up with 364 days a year. I think Actually, Christmas- Megan, I got home last night and Megan had her first little punishment. I mean, granted, she's eight, so it took this long, but she had her first little punishment from Bobby. Wow. Was this for, was she selling goods illegally at school again? Bracelets, whatever she was doing with that whole scheme she had a friend come over and they went up in her room and they got the paint out and they started not they started painting and uh megan we had just taken her to get new clothes and she had a new shirt on and paint all over it Mm. and then she tried to hide it she the sweet oh she's so sweet she put it like in the closet and like hid the shirt because she knew so then we said, you, you just got to tell us the truth so we can get the paint mm-hmm. out. You can't, you know, and then the, the tears. And-, and you're like, it's okay, Megan. Mommy also hit a shirt back when she was a girl after she did what she did to Carousel. We had to get rid of that evidence. Anyway, what is Megan getting this year so, now that they are so safely tuned out? From what I hear from the big guy. Okay, you've got a good source. I got a good source. Um, she will be getting a new iPad. She will be getting the Barbie Dream House. An iPad. Yes. She's how old? Nine? She's eight. She already has one. This is going to be her second. This is a replacement iPad? Yeah. All right. Uh, the Barbie Dream House. Every little girl has to have that one year. Okay. And is, What is that exactly? Just like- Are you kidding? Like dolls and stuff? You don't know what the Barbie Dream House no, is? No, I'm a boy. So it's literally a huge dollhouse, but okay. Barbie. Okay. It's pretty big. It's pretty epic. That's mostly going to be for you, isn't it? <laughs> I do love to play Barbies with her. Mm-hmm. My Barbie's usually hungover. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, no. I'm not kidding. Don't bother this Barbie. She's tired. I'm not kidding. This Barbie had a long night. I usually say like this, like my Barbie, you know, whoever her name is like, she came in at like two in the morning and she's, you're probably going to punish her. So just leave her up there. <laughs> uh, then she got, do you know what American Girl doll is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have this ice cream truck. So she got that. Wow. Um, she got a necklace making kit. Oh, she got a green screen. Wait, a necklace making kit. Is that, are you enabling her little side hustle? <laughs> a little bit. This is a different kind of necklace. Uh, she got a green screen and all the stuff that goes with making videos because she wants to start a Megan's Mega World on YouTube. Actually, she did get a lot of stuff. Are you going to let your daughter put videos of herself on the internet? It will be monitored, and we're trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. We're we're not really sure how this is going to go. Yeah, it's a trick. It's a tricky one. We but want that's her to be like creative. A very, very elaborate Christmas coming up for Megan. Yeah, and that's actually we scaled back. <laughs> well, congratulations. Well, you know to what her. we do though. I was just telling the boss that she's like that. She seems like a lot of money. I said, well, we're very old school, Bobby and I. We have a Christmas club. Remember oh, those? Oh, yeah, no, we've talked about this before. <laughs> I'd never heard of it before until you, I think the first year we were doing this show with Benson and Harf, you started talking about a Christmas club and I looked at Marie. I was like, I don't know what that is. What is she talking about? You save. We start in January. We have a separate account and that is just for Christmas. It's direct deposited into there. So then when the time comes for Christmas gifts, we don't put anything on a credit card. Um, and if we have leftover, it's just, it's just there. Yeah. And actually like, we'll take some money out for like Thanksgiving dinner, you know, like we just, like if we're hosting, like that's just everything for the holidays. So we're not, you know, spending like too, too much. 
We have two other members here on the team. They've been awfully silent and absent during this conversation, but we will get to Dan and to Wyatt on the Christmas gift train. When we come back, it's the extended home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the home home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about gifts within the team. I gave my confession earlier. Let's bring in Dan. The only question I have for you, and there's only one correct answer to this. Have you secured gifts for your girlfriend? I have. I'm also a last minute one, though, and I kind of just did it recently. That's fine. Um, but no, they are really. they are secured, and she's away for the like for Christmas, so I had some extra leeway time to get it. Mm, the buffer so zone. They're coming, and I didn't want her to see the boxes come to the apartment, so they're coming after, while she's gone. But you're covered. You've, but you've I'm got covered that too. Yes, okay, absolutely. very good. I'm covered. Meanwhile, quiet Wyatt, you're a big gift giving guy. You brought actually a very lovely gift to our Christmas party. Some little Yeti, sort of like wine glasses that you could have outside or even in a hot tub type situation setting. Very nice, plus some booze. And you said to fly. Where are you flying again? You have to, oh, you're going. Of course, you're going to Disney. Of course, you're going to Disney. And you had to check an additional bag because you have so many gifts that you've already purchased. How many gifts are you bringing with you down to Florida? Well. I also I want to say I'm not a great gift giver because last year I really failed. I really dropped the ball, and my siblings were very disappointed in what I got them. Wow. I literally gave them 50 bucks, and I said – and I gave them my code to start a Robinhood account so that they could start investing in stocks because I thought, you know, I get a little something if they use my code, <laughs> and they get a little stock thing. They were very disappointed with that. So I upped my game this year, so I got gifts that I'm going to bring down to Florida – um, for for both my parents and my siblings. Are you more confident this year that they will oh, be greeted with uh, greater fanfare? Big time. I got I got my my siblings both Apple watches for Christmas. Oh wow! I think I think that they could both benefit from maybe you know using them and and they both have iPhones. They both got new iPhones, so they will work and Whoa. all this stuff. And that's a very generous gift. Yeah, an Apple so watch. I, is- I felt like last year I was I really they were. It was bad. They were very disappointed. And so, so you need I, to redeem yourself this year. Yes. See, I was expecting that you would give them a paid subscription to the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and a little $10 gift card to Rook Coffee. And it's really, they're like, oh, you're like, I'm sorry, you're disappointed by these gifts. You know what? Let me just take those off your hands. It's like you'll have three print editions every day of the Wall Street Journal, and you can just fan them out on a large table with a cup of coffee. You'd be in heaven. Well, safe travels down to Florida and say hello to the sunshine free state for us. Say hello to the governor if you bump into him. And because why it's going to be off tomorrow. We're here. Although producer Christine is working from home, she will be working the show tomorrow. Dan will be here. I will be here. But Wyatt's off to Florida. So farewell, Wyatt. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guy. Merry Christmas to the team. And Christine, are you ready for your last day before your little break? To work from home? Are you going to be working from home or are you going to be, quote, working? No, I have to be producer Christine and producer Wyatt tomorrow, so good luck with that. Yes, that's the spirit. All right, we got to go. Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. I'm in for the great lady. Hope to see you there. Back here on the radio tomorrow. Merry Christmas. Have a great night. We'll talk to you then.
Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.